Hello, friend. Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. And with all my heart, I hope you hear something that edifies, encourages, equip, enlightens, and then engages you in the marketplace of ideas. But before you go and before you listen, I want to take a quick moment and explain to you this month's truth tool. The book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. You know, it's paramount as followers of Christ that we not only know what we believe, but why we believe it. So questions like heaven and hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians. But sometimes we don't fully understand what it is we believe about Christianity. So the book, I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith is just that. It's concise and it's a wonderful guide to explain to you the cornerstones of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. It's yours for a gift of any amount because In the Market with Janet Partial is a listener-supported broadcast. We stay on the air because you pray and give. So if you'd like this month's Truth Rule, just call 877-JANET-58. Ask for a copy of I Believe. That's 877-JANET-58. Or you can go online to InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Give a gift of any amount. We'll send it to you as our way of saying thank you. While you're on that website, you might want to take a moment, scroll down just a little bit farther, and there's a description of what it means to be a partial partner. These are people who give at a level of their own choosing, and they give every month. They get the truth tool if they ask for it every single month, and they'll also get a newsletter, only people that do, that includes an audio portion that only goes to my partial partners. So if you want to be a partial partner or you're just interested in giving one time to get a copy of I Believe, 877-JANET-58 is the route to go, 877-JANET-58, or online at InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. I Believe, a great book for you to put in your backpack as you continue your Pilgrim's Progress. Now, please enjoy the podcast. Friends, this is Janet Parshall. Thanks so much for choosing to spend the next hour with us. Today's program is pre-recorded, so our phone lines are not open. But thanks so much for being with us, and enjoy the broadcast. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely rare safety move by a nation. 17 years of Palestinians and Israelis Hello, friends. Welcome to In the Market. I'm your host, Janet Parshall. We welcome you as we walk around the marketplace of ideas and take a closer look at some of the things that are being bought and sold out there. Okay, show of hands all across the country. How many of you have been hearing some rather robust conversations about the American economy of late? Mm-hmm. And keep your hands up. Now, put your hand down if you haven't heard people say, well, we almost feel like there's been a paradigm shift here and we're moving to socialism. Okay, I still, yeah, a lot of hands. Mm -hmm. And then some people have said, well, the answer is not capitalism. That's what got us into trouble in the first place. You heard all of that? Okay, your arm's getting tired. I know you could put it down now. Well, we're going to talk about that subject of capitalism. And we're going to talk with a man who says, wait a minute, the concepts of capitalism are very much in alignment with the teachings of Jesus and the Christian tradition. And so Dr. Jay Richards put it all together in a book that I have in front of me. I remember talking to Jay when it was in hardback. Now it's out in paperback. 
And you should see my copy. It's an embarrassment. It is dog-eared. It is underlined with magic marker. I have enjoyed it both times I've read it, and I learned new things upon each reading. So I strongly want to recommend it to you. You can learn more about it by going to In the Market with JanetPartial.org. You'll see Jay's picture there. And a copy of Money, Greed, and God, Why Capitalism is the Solution and Not the Problem. Jay... And I need to call him out of all due respect. Dr. Richards is a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, fabulous organization, and a contributing editor at the American Magazine and the American, excuse me, in the Enterprise Brog at the American Enterprise Institute, or as we say in D.C., AEI. He has been featured in major publications across the country and major media, by the way. And he's also lectured the folks up on Capitol Hill about some of the economic myths that are out there. And he sure does the exact same thing inside this book. In fact, what he does is he takes a look at some key myths, eight of them to be exact, dealing with the subject of capitalism. And I think you're going to be surprised. But I also want to welcome you all into the discussion at one 548 3675 or send us your email on the subject of capitalism or free market or free enterprise. We'll talk about those words, probably juxtaposition them now and again. You can send us your email at janetpartial at moody.edu. Janet Parshall at moody.edu. You know, Jay, because this came out in paperback, some of the stats go back to 2007. So I know you were sitting there at your word processor back in 2007. Did you have any idea how how almost prophetic in some respects this would be? Because we've seen... Now it's the water cooler topic. It's over the back fence to the neighbor. It's in the carpool where people are talking about a paradigm shift from what we have historically practiced in this country when it comes to economics, which is much more free market based, free enterprise, capitalistic approach to this idea of socialism. So your book is even more relevant now in paperback than it was when it came out in hardback. Well, you know, it is, Janet. It's funny. Of course, yeah, when I turned in the manuscript, the financial crisis had not quite happened yet. Uh, it was called the Christian Case for Capitalism, and then we had the financial crisis, and, it, you know, by the time it uh, was about to come out in hardback, it was almost as if I had written it as a response to the daily news. But, of course, I'd finished the manuscript before any of these things happened. Um, but, you know, I, I, frankly, I had sensed that something like this was going to happen because I'd been speaking on Christian colleges for the last several years, and I realized, you know, there are kids that are 18, 19, 20, years old that don't even remember the Cold War. They don't remember the Soviet Union, and they're, they're voting, but they were born after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And a lot of the same, frankly, bad ideas that I picked up at a very liberal college uh, when I was 18 years old, finally worked my way out of, the same bad ideas are, are you know, uh, resurfacing in the minds of the next generation. And so I knew that, uh, you know, these arguments have to be made over and over again, and they have to be made in new and compelling ways to every generation, because even though the, the arguments don't change, the laws of economics don't change, but the people that are considering them and voting uh, for candidates and considering public policies, those people change, and we have to, in every generation, I think, understand these things anew. I couldn't agree more. One quick comment on the up-and-coming generation. This is from a mom's perspective, but I remember when a particular cartoon came out, it was called Captain Planet, and the bad guy was the capitalist. And I was thinking, oh my, what a wonderfully sad way, if I can couple those two (laughs) words together, to indoctrinate children on the ills of capitalism by making it look like this was greed and gluttony and pollution all rolled into one concept. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've tried this exercise with people, but try to think of a, a half a dozen movies in which a business person, you know, a capitalist, as a capitalist, is portrayed as a hero in a movie. Now, you might get business people like, you know, Batman, uh, who ends up being a hero, but it's not 
for his work as an industrialist is because he happens to be a rich guy that, you know, he plays hooky at night and saves people. But it's very hard to think of movies in which the business person, as the business person, is the good guy. I mean, 99 times out of 100, literature, media, movies, uh, advertisements, they make the capitalist the bad guy. And yet, you know, if you actually look at the, the data of history, it's been entrepreneurs in capitalist economies that have created more wealth for more people than anybody else in history. And yet they're almost always portrayed in a bad light. And Christians... Uh, fall for the same stuff. Exactly. In fact, you make references all the way back when it comes to some of these myths to Dante's Inferno and one of the rings of hell. We'll talk about that. It was just to tweak your interest a little bit, friends. We're going to take a break. Come right back. Our conversation is about this economic system known as capitalism and why Dr. Richards really and truly believes, look, it is in alignment with the teachings of Jesus and the Christian tradition. Jump in anytime with your questions at 1-877-LIVE-675, 1-877-548-3675, or send us your email at Janet Parshall at moody.edu. It tells you that a lot of people want to make a lot of money. Are they going to learn that by reading uh, your book? Well, they might learn that, and they also might learn that they shouldn't try making too much money because I really have a theory that some people are not destined to make a lot of money, and that's fine, and they can be very happy. In fact, they can be much happier by not. Those people shouldn't be because they'll ruin their lives. I mean, they'll go and they'll they'll put up their, their house and they'll mortgage their cars and everything else they own, and they'll go into business, and they shouldn't necessarily be in business. Not everybody is meant to be a business person. Well, that's Donald Trump. He certainly is a business person. And I want to ask, ask Dr. Jay Richards what he thinks about what Donald Trump just said. Let me reintroduce Jay to you, senior fellow of the Discovery Institute and a contributing editor of The American at the American Enterprise Institute. He has been a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation and a research fellow and director of the Acton Media at the Acton Institute. And he joins us today because his book is now out in paperback. It's called Money, Greed, and God, Why Capitalism is the Solution and Not the Problem problem. Now, Jay, some people might have gasped when they heard Donald Trump make that statement from yeah. years ago, by the way, and say, oh, what do you mean not everybody is cut out to be a businessman? You make that point, mm-hmm. by the way, and you, you yeah. talk about, in fact, the parallel I was thinking when I heard Donald Trump was your conversation about coffee in the book right. and why not everybody's destined to be a coffee grower. So dive in, feet first. Yeah. I want to hear what you have to say. Well, it is funny to hear Donald Trump say, well, you know, not everybody can handle making a lot of money. I mean, the truth of the matter is people like to sort of try that for themselves, I suppose, rather than hearing <laughs> from Donald Trump. You know, but I mean, his general point, especially if he's talking about entrepreneurs, everybody is not meant to be an entrepreneur. If you look at what great entrepreneurs do, they're the people that will take what little money they have, they, they save up as much as they can, they get their friends to invest their wealth, and then they put their money at risk in pursuit of some vision, some product or some service that hasn't yet come to fruition, and they're doing it sort of anticipating someone's needs. So you think about the invention of things like MP3 players or iPods. We weren't all sitting around saying, hey, you know, I really wish I had an iPod. Um, But, you know, some really smart engineers and entrepreneurs invested money in that. They anticipated that if something like that happened, something like that existed, people would buy it and they'd want it. That's a very, very risky venture. Not everybody has the intestinal fortitude for that kind of risk, for putting their money at, at risk. And so I think it's 
perfectly acceptable that a lot of people are perfectly happy to you know, earn regular hourly wages or a salary for some kind of job, but it's not putting their wealth at risk. It's really important to realize we all have different gifts. Besides which, you know, sometimes just by luck of where we live, there are certain things, like you said, coffee, uh, that are we're just not going to be our comparative advantage. I mean, I live here in Seattle, and that's not one of the better-known places for growing coffee. I could probably do it, but, you know, there's places in Brazil that are, that are much better for that. And so, it, you know, to succeed in business, you need all of these things sort of a, a, a aligned. And the truth of the matter is there are going to be some people that are risk-takers, like entrepreneurs. There are going to be some people uh, that are, as Trump, you know, sort of implied, the better off is, is wage earners, and that's okay. But, you know, I think he could have probably put it a little more delicately. All right. Thank you for that, Jay. Jim, I'd like to start with you, please, if I may. You join us from Naperville, Illinois, and your comment or question for Dr. Richards, please. Okay. Hi, Janet. Thank you for all your fine work. And thank Dr. You. Richards, I, mm-hmm. I have not read your book yet, but I wanted to know, does the Gospel of Luke and liberation theology, especially in Latin America, does any of that play into uh, some of the uh, uh, socialistic uh, concepts that have infiltrated the evangelical church? Uh, I wanted to hear your comments on that. Sure. Now, by the Gospel of Luke, do you mean the actual Gospel of Luke in the Bible, or were you referring yeah. to something else? Oh, oh yes, yes, the, uh, the actual uh, Gospel of Luke, because uh, most of the parables, uh, you know, the book really greatly deals with, uh, you know, stewardship. Sure, uh, exactly Obviously, right. there's a, a, you know, salvation is the, the, the main thing, but yet there's a, uh, a discipleship and... Uh, how we handle uh, what God uh, has given us in terms of stewardship. Right. right. Um, and I, I've seen, uh, I've, in my mind, uh, a gross distortion of that because you have many examples in the gospel of not having to leave everything, like Zacchaeus, where he, mm-hmm. he uh, writes his wrongs and gives half of everything. Uh, you know, uh, uh, sure. You know, back Jesus never asked him to give everything up. You know. Right. And another I mean, man, you know, he, he, he leaves everything. Uh, that's right. Anyway, I wanted to hear your comments on yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly the, the Gospel of Luke and Luke-Acts, which is traditionally uh, thought that Luke wrote both Luke and the, the Book of Acts. There's a lot of themes about our concern for the poor. You know, blessed are the poor is the way uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount uh, uh, is in, in the Gospel of Luke. But it's really important to distinguish between God's concern for the poor our obligation to be concerned for the poor, especially those poor around us that we can do something about, and these economic theories like socialism. I mean, you referred to liberation theology. Liberation theology was a movement that really got started uh, in about the 1960s in Latin America, and it was a group of theologians who quite explicitly took, uh, at the time, uh, sort of a version of Catholic theology and Marxist social analysis, okay, and wed them together. So probably the most famous uh, book in, in liberation theology is a book called Theology of Liberation uh, Mm -hmm. by Gustavo Gutierrez. But it is quite explicitly a use of Marxism and Christian theology that ceases to be Christian theology. Uh, And Pope John Paul was quite explicit in condemning it. Nevertheless, it it spread like wildfire, especially among intellectuals in Latin America. And then from there, it unfortunately spread into American seminaries. I was, uh, in my years in seminary, I actually had to read the Theology of Liberation three Mm -hmm. different times in three different classes so that you can tell you how sort of prevalent it is. 
ideas. But as kind of an intellectual movement, it's, it's dead. I mean, even some of the original liberation theologians admit that they got a lot of stuff wrong. But as a sociological phenomenon, there's no doubt that it's infiltrated the churches. And what we're seeing now uh, among a lot of uh, evangelical churches in particular, you know, especially a lot of the so-called emergent churches, is we're seeing a lot of the kind of bad ideas that happened about two generations ago in mainline uh, Protestant denominations, like the one I grew up in. Uh, it's just that a lot of the evangelical churches are sort of lagging behind, but it's not like these are new ideas. It's just t- taken uh, longer for them to, to work their way into evangelical circles. And so there's a lot of folks going to what they think of as a conservative evangelical church that are suddenly hearing this stuff. And that's what's different about 2010. You know, in, in 1970, this was not happening in evangelical churches, but in 2010, it's exactly what's happening, especially in some of the younger churches. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have this program, Jay, just so we can examine some ideas just like this. Two quick questions, and I want to go back to the phones. If I were to look up the word capitalism in the dictionary, what would I read? What's my definition? It's, it's per- a perfectly acceptable and sort of benign definition. It usually says something like an economic system uh, with relatively free markets and uh, unregulated markets, rule of law in which people are able to trade goods, services, uh, and information freely without sort of control by the government. So basically private property, rule of law, and free trade. It, you know, it's some version of that. It's nothing, you know, it, it's nothing about the, the rich stealing from the poor or any of the things that we tend to associate with the word capitalism. It's basically synonymous with free trade uh, or with a free market, but it, it always takes place in the context of rule of law. So it's not like anarchy where people just get to do what they want to do. But even though there's the parameter of the rule of law, which is a great leveler and stabilizer, it is not mm-hmm. the intrusion of the law slash government. And that makes the distinction, is it not? That's exactly right. I mean, the rule of law, it's, it's sometimes hard to get your mind around it, but the rule of law includes a limited government in which the government itself is under the rule of law. And so rule of law refers to these obvious things like, you know, not killing each other. We can't steal from each other. We can't defraud each other. We have to stick to our contracts. It doesn't talk about all sorts of kind of government regulations of the economy in which you've gone way past the rule of law. Mm. Jay, we have some fascinating questions online, so let me take a break and we're going to come right back. Dr. Jay Richards is with us. He is the author of Money, Greed, and God. The subtitle of the book is Why Capitalism is the Solution and Not the Problem. We welcome your calls and comments on this. I think this is going to be a great clarifying conversation as well. Jay believes that the ideas in capitalism very much are in alignment with the teachings of Jesus and the Christian tradition. Do you agree or disagree? Listen to some more. one 877 or send us your emails at janetpartial at moody.edu. We'll be right back. stop to notice how many songs there are about money out there? There certainly are, and I wonder why. Well, the love of money, the scripture says, is the root of all evil. It doesn't make money bad. It's where your heart is in alignment to that treasure that we don't own, by the way. We're simply in a management position. 
Jay Richards is with us. He's written the book Money, Greed, and God. A lot of conversation out there today about the subject of money, capitalism, free market, free enterprise versus socialism. So many of us are sensing a paradigm shift and we need to stop, take a deep breath and ask ourselves what was good about this system known as capitalism and what do we need to do to make sure that that system is preserved in this country and particularly when it comes to helping the poor. Which system is better, a socialistic system or a capitalistic system? And Dr. Jay Richards writes about that with eloquence in his book. I said I'd go to the phones. I'm keeping my word. Tanya, I welcome you from Tennessee. Thanks for being with us and your thoughts on this, please. Hello. Um, I'd like to first say that I agree with you that capitalism is the ideal framework for our country to operate within. And I want to preface my next statement by saying I don't believe that churches have to be communes. But having said that, am I wrong in thinking that we would um, practice capitalism in our business finances in order to live out what some people could call a form of socialism within our families and within our faith communities? That, that's a really good question. I think it's really important to just make really careful distinctions because the way in which we interact in, with our family or with our close friends is different from the way we interact in a marketplace. I mean, in a marketplace, most of the people you deal with, you don't ever actually know. So you know, the people that made my computer, that made the pencil in my pocket, I don't know who they are. They don't know who I am. And so it's just by, by its very nature impersonal. And so we want to a system, and capitalism is the best system for allocating all these kinds of resources most efficiently. With my family, though, I mean, you could say it's a kind of a form of socialism, but the problem is that socialism has a dictionary definition. You look up the word, it means uh, the public or state ownership of the means of production. It has very specifically to do with the government coercively confiscating people's private property. That's different from a type of kind of shared or communal living like we have in our family. Of course, many of the decisions I make, I make not for myself, but for my daughters or for my wife. And so that type of relationship is appropriate to a family. There's another type of kind of sharing relationship, especially in the local church, which is actually what we see in the book of Acts, when uh, the early church, just in Jerusalem, by the way, in that one, one time and place, decided to uh, sell their private goods and hold everything in common. That was never held up as the ideal for everyone. They chose to do that because there were all these new Christians that had come from all around the known world that suddenly became Christians and were away from home. Um, but it's really important to realize that it's perfect acceptable. In fact, we ought to expect that different types of groups and human relationships and institutions are going to relate differently. And the way we relate in a family is different from how we relate in the marketplace. And the danger is that people will take the way we relate to the family and say, yeah, I really like this way of interacting. Now let's make the whole economy like that. Uh, and when you think like that, the problem is somebody has to be you know, the father that's ultimately in charge. And the father, unfortunately, ends up being the state or the government, the one entity with uh, the power of coercion and you end up with a complete disaster. So just think of it as there's a natural kind of internal logic of relationship that's appropriate to these different human institutions. Tanya, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it. And on the heels of what you just said, Jay, Al, I want to welcome you into our discussion from Chicago. I actually think that uh, the church did, uh, the early church did set uh something that looked a lot more like uh, communism than capitalism up, uh, up as an example. Um, I think that maybe uh, the, the way we treat our family in a, quote, socialistic manner is uh, maybe the, the way we show great love, and that, of 
course, is more important than uh, many things. Um, I'm a little bit concerned about how much, frankly, Moody is focusing uh, as of late on capitalism as opposed to Christianity. I, I don't see why we're why Moody is so focused on capitalism. Janet, maybe May I'll I answer? answer the, yeah, why don't you answer yes, you the Moody do, question? <laughs> <laughs> and then you do you do the other part, the I'll church the history part, part okay? Yeah, Acts 2, definitely. Exactly. Well, Al, I can tell you that uh, since we've started our program, this is the first program we've done on this particular subject. And the reason why we're doing it is because I think it's a fascinating conversation about what really is the right approach biblically toward an economic system. Uh, it'll be one of a myriad of topics we'll talk about. It certainly wasn't the topic we talked about yesterday, and it won't be what we talked about tomorrow, but I certainly do appreciate your feedback tremendously. And now, going to church history. Now, Al actually yeah. used the word communism. Right. I mean, this is, again, it's, it's, we need to be really careful the words we use. I mean, what he's thinking about, of course, is in the early uh, chapters of Acts, the church in Jerusalem. Now, remember that, because there are other churches. There's church in Corinth and in Antioch in uh, Thessalonica and different places in the book of Acts and Paul's letters. The, it, we don't know nothing that they did uh, this kind of sort of church model there. So this idea uh, that people, you know, of sh- sharing their goods in common, selling their private goods and sharing them in common, that happened in Jerusalem at a particular point in time. It was never held up, even in the early church, as an ideal. It's not portrayed that way anywhere. And in fact, uh, when Peter condemns Ananias and Sapphira, in the passage, he actually doesn't condemn them for having private goods. He condemns them uh, for lying about having sold their uh, their goods. If you look up the word communism in the dictionary, it's an economic system in which the government confiscates private property. The government, the Roman government in the book of Acts is nowhere in sight. We've got a group of, a small group of Christians voluntarily sharing their goods in common. That's just, that's communal living, but it's not communism. Mm-hmm. Al, thank you very much for being a part of our discussion. We appreciate it. We're going to take a break and come right back. Dr. Jay Richards is with us. He is a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute and a contributing editor at the American Magazine and the Enterprise blog at the American Enterprise Institute. We'll be back. Friends, this is Janet Parshall, and I want to take a moment to remind you that today's program is pre-recorded, so our phone lines aren't open. But I sure do appreciate your spending the hour with us. And thanks so much, and enjoy the rest of the program. In capitalism, uh, when you have a wonderful business, it's like having an economic castle. And the nature of capitalism is that people want to come in and take your castle. Perfectly understandable. I mean, if I'm selling television sets or something, there's going to be 10 other people who are going to try and sell a better television set. If I have a restaurant here in Omaha, people are going to try and copy my menu and get more parking and take my chef and so on. So capitalism's all about somebody coming and trying to take the castle. Now, what you need is you need a castle that has some durable competitive advantage, some castle that has a moat around it. And that moat, best, one of the best moats in many respects is to be a low-cost producer. But sometimes the moat is just having more talent. I mean, if you're the heavyweight champion of the world and you keep knocking out people, you've got a competitive advantage as long as you can keep doing it. 
Warren Buffett talking about capitalism. Dr. Jay Richards is with us. He is the author of Money, Greed, and God. And I'm going to play the antagonist here, Jay. Sure. Somebody could hear Warren Buffett saying, well, see, that's why I don't like capitalism. I mean, the man has, you know, a gazillion dollars, and he's talking about a castle and a moat. And where's the Christ-like perspective in the midst of all of that? Yeah, well, that's a legitimate question, actually, because, um, uh, of course, you know, the reality is that competition is a part of capitalism. And that's not the only story. People think it's, you know, sometimes say that capitalism is like social Darwinism, where the, the, the weak are destroyed and the strong survive. But notice what Buffett's saying very carefully when he's talking about uh, competing and somebody wanting in on your castle. He's actually describing this process in which different firms compete among each other for somebody else's business. So let's say you've got two butchers, you know, in, in your neighborhood. Uh, they compete, but in a capitalist system, they can't compete by blowing each other's stores up, right, or stealing the meat from the other butcher. They compete by trying to outperform the other and provide some service for people better than the other one. Well, that's the kind of competition you want. You know, people are actually competing to serve their fellow human beings better than the other people. So what that means is that even if people are sometimes greedy, and in a fallen world, you're going to always have greedy people, in a capitalist system to get ahead, people still have to figure out ways to to serve their fellow human beings. That's why Adam Smith said it. It's the genius of the system. It's not that it's based on greed. It's that it channels greed into socially beneficial outcomes. And that's what Buffett was talking about. Okay, and now let me flip this around and go from the producer to the consumer. That's you and me. So when you have competition, it seems to me that two things become very self-evident rather quickly. Number one, competition is going to create a better product. I think Henry Ford could be an example of that. And number two, it drives the price down. When there is no competition, somebody can raise the price as high as they want to. How does that help the people who are struggling the most among us? It doesn't. In fact, it's an onerous burden for them. That's exactly right. And so when people hear competition, you got to see it in the context of the whole. So, you know, even somebody, if I'm a, a car salesman and, you know, I'm going to be upset if I lose out on a sale to someone else, nevertheless, society as a whole is better off if people are working to sell their things so that the product is better and it's more inexpensive. Even the guy at the other car dealership himself has to buy cars and he himself is going to benefit from lower prices on cars. And so it's always important to realize that when you don't have a competitor, if you live in a small town and there's only sort of one general store, you know exactly what we're talking about because they have no reason, no incentive to keep their prices low because there's nobody competing with them. The second a store opens up across the street, suddenly that competition kicks in and everybody in the long run ends up better off as a result of that constrained competition. It's competition within the rule of law, not competition like you'd get in a state of Mm -hmm. nature. Exactly right. Excellent point. All right. You look at eight myths in Money, Greed, and God, and I'm going to go to one based on an email from Zanise, who read it in the hardback version. But she said, I particularly enjoyed the section about Christians charging interest, particularly to other Christians who borrow from them versus the use of usury. Talk about Mm -hmm. this, because this is one of the myths you address in the book. It is. And I call it, obviously enough, the usury myth. And usury is, it was basically, I mean, it's basically the sin that we would think of as loan sharking. So it's the unjust charging of interest or exploiting someone in their moment of need and in their poverty. And for hundreds of years, not just Christians, but in fact, most ancient civilizations, the Romans, the Greeks, the the Chinese, thought that charging interest on a money loan was immoral, was a sin. So, you know, you mentioned earlier in the hour that in Dante's Inferno, he puts the users way down there in hell with some of the really bad people. Um, But you got to realize what exactly was going on. In in earlier economies, like if you think the ancient Hebrew economy, for instance, in which, you know, you read some passages in the Old Testament, 
Testament, and Jews are commanded not to charge their neighbor's interest in lending money. Um, but you've got to remember the society at the time. You basically had an agrarian economy in which you have tribes that are more or less cousins. All they've got is the money that they get off the, the, the wealth that they get from the land that you know, they, they grow produce on. Some people might have a little extra money, but it's not being invested in anything. It would just be the form of coins or something under the bed. So you've got your cousin, and he has not made enough in the last season to keep from starving to death. You're not, it's uncharitable to exploit him by lending him some money that's not doing anything anyway so that he can survive, and then sort of making, it, making him fork over exorbitant amounts of interest. That's usury. The problem is what happened in, in medieval Europe is that people started having a kind of excess of money, and when people have an excess of money as well started to be created, they, they created banks. They put money in banks, and the banks could take that money, and rather than just sitting on it, they could lend it out to other people, and that money could then be used to create wealth. So what had happened is that the very nature of money had changed in society from being just a, merely a sort of sterile store of, of value that people used to kind of just record how much they had earned to something that's actually fertile, so that rather than just sitting on it like a miser, they could put, give it to a bank, and it could be reinvested. Well, now it becomes clear that a bank lending money that somebody has deposited, if they're charging a rate of interest, they're charging for a good because now they're putting the money at risk. That money can be used to invest in new businesses. So they're really charging for something. And so Christian theologians and thinkers eventually realize that there are different types of money lending and a regular bank loan like we have, that's not the sin of usury. The only sin of usury would be the, like the thing that the loan shark does. And this is very important to the development of capitalism. And it's why it's important to realize that a Christian can perfectly well work with money and work with banking and lend money and charge interest uh, as long as it's that type of legitimate activity and it's not loan sharking. All right, then two parallel questions that go to what you just said. Number one, this is where I think the rule of law comes in because we don't want government intrusion, but to make sure that usury doesn't happen, that a bank mm. doesn't say, well, we're going to charge you 85% on the money that we just lent you. Right. Doesn't the rule of law come in and say that because of the common good, which is what government's mm. supposed to do is seeking the common good, it can cap at some level where it's fair, it's equitable. It keeps the ebb and flow of the free enterprise going, but at the same time isn't so onerous that people are running amok without some boundary as to how high they could go as an example in interest rates. Well, it could. And, you know, the, the reality is, is if banks are required simply to speak and to, to represent themselves honestly, because that's what we're dealing with now is, is some credit card companies that don't actually accurately represent what the interest rate is. So they basically defraud people that don't realize what the interest rate is. On the other hand, if banks are being open and honest, then I honestly think the market itself keeps the interest rate down because you've got com competition so that different banks that charge too high of an interest rate aren't going to get any customers. What we've unfortunately gotten ourselves into is that a lot of banks and uh, credit card companies basically deceive the consumer. But as long as you've got uh, open competition, the open competition itself keeps the rate of interest down just like it does uh, uh, ideally at least with mortgage loans. And so I think even without a government regulation of, of interest rates, if you've got real competition, competition. where banks having to be honest, yeah, then that by itself is going to keep the loan down. And it's, it's really just these loan sharks that are acting uh, outside the law that, that are able to charge exorbitant interest rates. Exactly. And without going down the rabbit trail of talking about credit cards, I think most people listening would say, there's where you see how competition can be beneficial. All you have to do is say to a credit card company, <laughs> I think I'm going to move my balance and watch what happens to your interest rate. Right? That's right. You just got to pay attention so you know what they're charging you. That's exactly right. <laughs> Susan, you're in Indianapolis, Indiana. Thank you for calling us. We'd like your question now, please. You know what, Susan? You're going to have to turn your radio down because it'll talk at a different pace than I do. 
There you go, Susan. Welcome. It's good Hello. to have you with us. Yes, Susan, go ahead. I'm so sorry. Um, I uh, I was wondering, you know, with the concept of Christianity um, uh, and, and capitalism, and I'm certainly a capitalist, um, I think because of the uh, the fact that our church hasn't, the churches have not really helped to people discern their own personal greed, that um, I wonder if the, the scripture that says the law is for the lawless, that if that would mm. apply in a situation where we've completely gotten out of control, we've lost our conscience about finances, we've become very greedy, and therefore we need to be, you know, we need to be, um, uh, have more laws that, that, uh, protect people from being exploited by by greedy individuals that necessarily wouldn't be that way had they not you know had they maintained their Christianity. I'll hang up yeah. and let you. Yeah. Thank you, Susan. Respond. That that's a great question, Jay. What do you say? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm not I'm, I'm not sure. I'm quite sure uh, what she's after, but I think she she I did hear her say that we need more laws to protect people from from greediness. And the problem is, is you can't have laws against things that are in people's hearts. You can have laws against actions. And so, uh, if someone steals from someone, I can have a law against that. I can't have a law against the fact that somebody is uh, envious of something else because that's a state of the heart. And God's concerned about that, but you can't have a law against it. So this is why we have laws for things like like theft and fraud. But the problem with having a law against greed is, one, you can't directly identify it. But two, depending on the laws and the incentives, but greed leads to different ends. See, that's the genius of capitalism is that it, it's fit for a world that's fallen. It's fit for the reality that human beings are fallen, so we often have mixed motives. But in a capitalist system, even if somebody's greedy, if you've got the laws set up right, as we said in the example of the butcher, even the greedy butcher, in order to succeed, he can't steal or defraud from someone without breaking the law. If he's going to act lawfully, he has to provide something that someone will freely buy. I'm not going to buy his meat unless I think I'm better off as a result of, uh, of having bought his product. And so I think it's really important as Christians that we make those distinctions. Greed is a sin. There's no doubt about that. But we can't eradicate greed from the human heart any more than we can by ourselves eradicate uh, uh, death or disease. What we want is a set of laws that will channel even greedy motivations insofar as possible into socially beneficial outcomes. And that's what the rule of law is for. Dr. Jay Richards is with us. He is the author of Money, Greed, and God, Why Capitalism is the Solution and Not to the Problem. And if you go to In the Market with JanetParshall.org, In the Market with JanetParshall.org, you will see Jay's picture there and you'll see a copy of the book and you can click on through to learn how you can get a copy as well. Our number is one 675 1-877-548-3675. You can send us an email too at JanetParshall at Moody.edu. Janet Parshall at Moody.edu. And by the way, when you get to the website, you can sign up to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. So again, that website, in the market with JanetParshall.org. We'll be right back with more of your calls and comments from Dr. Jay Richards right after this.
lot of songs, as I said earlier, about money out there. Dr. Jay Richards is with us. The book is called Money, Greed, and God, Why Capitalism is the Solution and Not the Problem. Jay, there, you have a whole chapter called What Would Jesus Do? I thought it was wonderful because you took apart a whole lot of sub-issues that were there as well. I want to talk about the idea of circles of responsibility. Simple sure. question. In a socialistic system versus a capitalistic system, where would charity fit in both? Would charities f- flourish in a, in a socialistic system? And do we see them as being advantageous in a capitalistic system? That's, Jan, that's a perfect question because the reality is in a socialist system, you don't even have charity. And the reason I would say that is because charity presupposes freedom. So if I do something charitable for someone, you know, it refers to the state of my heart, I have to be free to do that. If somebody steals my money, it's not an act of charity. Now, what, what, what do you have where the government takes all of our property and then redistributes it at will uh, from, from the end of government? Well, now what the government does is actually stolen my very capacity to act charitably because they've remove that capacity from me. In, in, a, in a market economy or a capitalist economy, uh, it, its virtue is that it recognizes these different sort of circles of responsibility. As Christians, we know we're responsible for our fellow human beings. So it's not like we have, uh, uh, there's a question whether we should be concerned about the poor or our community or something like that. The only question is, how best do we deal with poverty? Now, for culture-wide poverty, we know the, there's only one solution we've ever discovered for bringing entire cultures out of abject poverty, and that's Capitalism. Capitalism gives rise to wealth creation and wealth creating institutions that bring everybody up out of at least absolute poverty. Now that people are at all sorts of different places, everybody isn't equally well off. But even the poor in advanced capitalist countries are better off than the rich in in developing countries. So that tells us something. But you still got you're going to always have the poor with you, as Jesus told you told us. So then the question is, what do you do then uh, when the economic system still leaves some people in poverty? Well, the question is, how is that poverty? Uh, best alleviated. Well, we know from, you know, big government programs like the War on Poverty in the 1960s that big centralized government solutions to to charity, to helping uh, those that are less fortunate, don't work. In fact, they end up setting up cycles of dependency and poverty from generation to generation. And I think that's because the very nature of poverty uh, in a really advanced societies often tends to come down to social problems. People often uh, have problems with alcoholism or, or family abuse, things like this, social pathologies that give rise to bad uh, economic consequences. And those have to be dealt with at a spiritual and a moral level one-on-one. So that's why these private charities uh, that are operated out of churches or faith-based communities that work in local communities have a much higher rate of success than big government programs because they're treating people at the level that they actually need to be treated. And But notice now we're talking about different types of institutions with different forms uh, of responsibility. The government, of course, has a responsibility to maintain the rule of law, but I would maintain that, that the federal government, especially the centralized government, is one of the, the least appropriate agents uh, for delivering charity to, to people that are the, uh, less fortunate. And doesn't it serve as a um, disincentive to the church? Well, it does. You know, it's funny, when I was at the Acton Institute, we have a, a prize called the Samaritan Award that we give. It's a, a $10,000 prize to any small local private charity uh, that practices what we call the principles of effective compassion. And one year when I was there, I read 311 applications. Every one of these private charities defined their project or their work over against what the government wasn't doing. So rather than saying, here's what we want to do, they said, okay, well, mm. what government programs, what things are falling between the cracks? So what that means is that when government takes over one of these services – 
it actually transforms private charity itself so that the private charity ends up basically retreating from the space. And that's what we've had happen is that government programs have sort of filled the charitable ecosystem that really ought to be filled with with faith-based and private organizations. Thank you for that, Jay. Luis in Cleveland, Ohio, welcome to our conversation. Your question, please. Uh, Yes. Um, I just want to ask, uh, uh, normally the the convention is to separate uh, the capitalist system from the socialist system. But many countries, and in in America, also the history of the capitalism, um, uh, has taken, capitalism has taken many elements from the socialist system. And in many countries, even there is an integration of some socialist view because uh, it looks like in history uh, the socialist system has put a human element as as an important issue. And in America, for example, the relationship between employee and uh, employer has improved a lot in history from the beginning to now. And also, for example, some abuse that occurred uh, uh, has necessarily bring control, uh, the need of control on, 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 some, on some activities. So the freedom is relative uh, to. But I, my, my main point is that probably the, the, a fair view of this is that uh, capitalism has to evolve um, take into account many of the elements that uh, the socialist system uh, have uh, proposed. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's an important point because, of course, when we're talking about capitalism or free markets, we're talking about sort of ideal types. I mean, there is no economy. The closest economy to sort of a really free market would be something like Hong Kong prior to the, the, uh, the transfer of power to the, to the um, communist Chinese. Uh, Hong Kong is every year in the index of economic freedom, it almost always comes up as number one in terms of having the freest economy. The United States has a somewhat mixed economy, so as the caller said, there's some elements that you might call socialism or government control over the economy, and we're moving much farther in that direction under the current administration. Uh, Western European countries, uh, many of them call themselves social democracies because they're sort of half socialist. The the question is, um, which of these kinds of reforms and which of these laws actually do what they're supposed to, and which ones actually help the economy, or are they actually a drag on the economy and they, they don't do what is advertised? And that's the kind of question I try to get in in the book, and I, I honestly think that uh, an ideally sort of free economy in the long run is going to be better off than even these mixed economies. Mm. Jay, there's so much in the book. Just in the question of government's responsibility, in fact, let me ask you, five-second question, five-second response. Is welfare government's version of charity? Well, it, it's an attempt to handle charity, and it's meant for the right reasons, but I don't think it ends with the, the same outcomes, unfortunately. And, friends, you'll have to get the book to see how Jay takes this and looks at some data, and it's really very much of a wake-up call. Jay, thank you. It's an insightful conversation. The book is called Money, Greed, and God, Why Capitalism is the Solution and Not the Problem. If you go to In the Market with JanetParshall.org, In the Market with JanetParshall.org, you can learn more about Jay and about his book as well. Thank you, friends, for joining us, and we'll do it all over again tomorrow. Thank you.